Hello, everyone. You are listening to A Brief History of Power. I'm Willie Grills here with Dr. Adam Kuntz, continuing our discussion of border wars. Adam, how's the weather in Colorado? It is very beautiful. The aspens are beginning to turn in the mountains, and it is about 72 degrees here in Denver, down in the flat ground. And it's just a really beautiful day. Well, I can um, I can actually report pleasant weather for the first time here in Arkansas. <laughs> That's great. It is, it is, at the time of recording, 75 degrees. It's probably a high of 107. Who knows what it's going to get to? I think it's 80s and thunderstorms today. We can live with that. <laughs> I, I sort of assume that's every day. I just I think of Arkansas as sort of like Florida with mountains. Is that is that more or less correct or totally off base? Or? No, no, I, I think that's fair. I don't okay. think they would like that. It's better than saying you know it's it's an offshoot of Texas, East Texas, or something. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's Florida with mountains. A lot of a lot of weird stuff. Weird you know? stuff, right? We that's why cryptids, that sort of thing. Right. Indians already driven out, so you know. You yeah, go not, over to Oklahoma to get that experience. Not reduced to alligator wrestling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Although Hot Springs does have the uh, the alligator farm. So if you want to, I don't think for legal purposes, I don't think I can call it that. It has alligator petting zoo or whatever it is there. <laughs> alligator mill. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they wouldn't, they wouldn't sell me one because I didn't have cash. So. Right. Yeah. Right. There's something like that in Southern Colorado and it, burned up in some sort of act of God earlier this year. So I mean, I'm just saying, if anyone has a good line on a baby alligator, we'll buy, we'll pay. <laughs> Full price. Yeah. Fair market value for your gray market animals, please. <laughs> I, I would say Arkansas is fairly well related to our topic for today, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. Um, we're going to close up the border war discussion and we're going to talk about the James gang and they go... I mean, pretty far east in their, in their, uh, I'm going to say shenanigans. Yeah. And, um, and what we're going to try and do is show you, um, talk to you a little bit about the history of the Wild West, how wild it actually was, and, uh, see if maybe today times are not appreciably wilder. Yeah. Because that is probably the biggest myth about American history in the 19th century. There are others that are definitely myths, and some of them we've popped on the show, and some of them we have yet to pop. But probably the biggest myth is is really just inside the phrase Wild West, as if the West was somehow unique. And we've been talking about the West as an outgrowth of the South, or at least places that are dubiously Southern, like Western Missouri during the Civil War. Right. And so... To get the context for this, you need to go back and listen to at least episodes four and five of this series and, you know, figure out, you know, who Captain Quantrell and Bloody Bill Anderson are, what's going on with the Missouri border war, because uh, the James Younger gang is going to be a direct byproduct of that. Yeah. And so, right. um, and while um, the James gang, I think, is still pretty, at least as a term, well known. Jesse James tends to be the one that everybody knows. And so, um, well, let's talk a little bit about Frank and Jesse then and uh, who they are and uh, why we're talking about them. Sure. We've mentioned them before. It's worth remembering that they are sons of a Baptist preacher who dies when they are quite young. And 
their mother remarries. But all of this is happening in Western Missouri and what we would now consider the Kansas City area, originally settled by Southerners. And they really are what probably the, the FBI would now call radicalized by Jayhawkers who attack their family's homestead, their their stepfather and, and their mother's homestead during the early years of the Civil War. Now, remember that in Missouri, this is a, just a time of random violence. There's no particular campaign going on in 1862 or 1863, but that random violence causes them to join up with the unit that will later be known as Quantrill's Raiders, sort of in in history, will be known as Quantrill's Raiders. And along with Quantrill, they're going to end up perpetrating, I guess you could say. I, I was I was looking for a neutral verb and I just couldn't find one. Perpetrating what's called the Lawrence Massacre, which happens in 1863. And we've mentioned that in previous episodes, like Pastor Girls discussed. Out of anybody that was at the Lawrence Massacre, you can trace, and a guy named Paul Wellman in a book called Dynasty of Western Outlaws did trace basically a criminal genealogy, including the Jameses and the Youngers, but it's going to go all the way down to the 1930s from there, out of people that were there on the night of the Lawrence Massacre in 1863. Right. Now, the plumb line from Missouri Guerrilla to Outlaw might seem very clear to others, might not seem that clear. Yeah. You know, the the guerrillas are either freedom finders protecting their homesteads or um, grug-brained right-wing, you know, uh, criminals, depending on how pro-Kansas <laughs> you are. <laughs> not pro-union, just pro-Kansas. Do you want it to exist or not? What is your metaphysical position <laughs> right. on the state of Kansas? And yeah. um, if you are, you know, if you want Kansas to exist, we invite you to listen to any other podcast but this one. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, they're going to almost immediately after the Civil War. I mean, their first the first bank robbery, you know, we're looking at 1866, you know, so in the immediate aftermath. And it's going to take place in Liberty, Missouri, you know, Zion itself. And so, um, you know, uh, oh, what's the name of the bank? Clay County Savings Association or something like that. And, you know, that's where you're first going to start to see names Jesse Frank James, Cole Younger, Bud and Donnie Pence, names that are going to pop up uh, again and again. Alan Palmer, you know, who is uh, their brother-in-law, things like that. And it's just going to go from there. You know, that's February 1866. You know, you're going to uh, get a jailbreak a little bit later in the year. Uh, that's going to be linked to the James brothers. And it's going to kind of go on and on until the early 1870s uh, when things really uh, pick up. Now, that's when you're going to start hearing names like the Pinkerton Detective Agency and things like that. You're going to have all of the, by 1873, you have all of the bones to make a Western if you want to. You have westward expansion, even though this isn't taking place in areas that you would associate with the Wild West, at least not in popular culture. But you've got the Pinkertons, you've got outlaws, they're robbing banks, and uh, why am I... we don't see a lot of bank robberies today uh, for a number of reasons, but, you know, um, they're going to be hailed as heroes by by some people. So you get the end of the Civil War, a growth in crime, particularly bank robberies, 
and other kind of raids. You have what you can't call them hobos, but what they'll call, because there's no, I mean, there are trains, but we don't have hobo culture yet. Uh, so you have bums. Okay, so transient, homeless, uh, in large numbers after the Civil War. And so that's all going to feed into the legend of the James Younger gang. And the what you said about the geography is maybe the most important fact here to consider is that some of their biggest operations are going to be in Missouri, even right. northern Missouri, Iowa. And the raid that is going to get them decimated as a gang, as gangs go, and will lead to Frank and Jesse beginning to hide out in the late 1870s, probably in Kentucky and Tennessee, right, where they will you know, later be apprehended or <laughs> shot to death in, in Jesse's case, <laughs> right? right. Those, those are places that are firmly Midwestern in everybody's mind. And at the time, maybe Missouri is still considering itself the West in the 1870s. Minnesota, definitely Northfield, Minnesota, which is full of Presbyterians and Lutherans, is not thinking of itself as the West. So what you can see is that what is going to turn into a myth of the West or a story of the West or common tropes of the West all exist in the Midwest and right. they, and, and and what they're flowing out of, right? Why do you have the first peacetime bank robberies in American history in 66 and 67? What they're flowing out of are men who were used to fighting for their lives, for their families in this specific, you could say, guerrilla or in very, you know, 20th century Africa terms, freedom fighter way. And there's no place for them, right? Where are they supposed to go when the war is over? Well, they can keep doing what they're doing, but now they're going to be portrayed as outlaws rather than, you know, Confederate troops, let's say. Right. It's going to feed into the legend of the outlaw. I mean, they're going to go as far east, at least as West Virginia, if not further. Right. I mean, 1875, they rob a bank in Huntington. West Virginia, you know, they're they're going to become legends, and it's really going to be very similar to the Missouri-Kansas uh, debate, you know. And where your political leanings go, that's going to color how you interpret the motives of these right. men. Yeah, yeah. And, and be, you, go ahead. Well, as I say, you know, why, you know, why, why might uh, these people consider bank robbers good guys? Yeah, this is this is a a deep myth especially in an Anglo culture, is that when you're dealing with someone who could potentially be a Robin Hood, you are dealing with someone who is following a law that is somehow greater or higher than the express law or the intent of law enforcement. So Robin Hood is stealing and Robin Hood is shuffling off the Norman yoke and releasing the Anglo-Saxons from their oppression by taking from those who are themselves robbers and giving to those who who have not or who have little. It's going to be the same thing with the James gang. And they're going to be portrayed, and it, it's pretty reliable. You know, if you sided with the Confederacy in Missouri or you are voting Democrat in Missouri after the Civil War, you probably like the Jameses. And the Jameses right. will be will be protected and they will be lauded in Democrat newspapers. And if you fought for the union and or you vote Republican in Missouri after the Civil War, you probably don't like them. So the James gang is going to be following what's reckoned. And this is part of the legend. And, and, and part of it really is legend. There's a really wonderful book called His Name Was Jesse James by William Settles. 
And what he tries to do in that book is to say, what part of this isn't legend? I'm going to try to tell the whole story without using legend. And it's really, really hard (laughs) because even if you say, you know, like, you know, you said, probably they don't go anywhere east of Huntington, West Virginia, or that's that's our easternmost confirmed place. Well, the reason we don't know is because everything and nothing was attributed to them. Right. <laughs> you know, when you when you're an outlaw, what you really are is you have moved beyond some kind of clear wanted poster status into a into a realm where for some people you are completely untouchable and for other people you are the devil incarnate. That that's that's really what you are. But if you're Jesse James, how are you going to stop doing that? You know, how does your life not end violently because it's like, well, <laughs> you know, I I, I'm like a demigod or I'm a devil, but I'm certainly not a normal man. So I can't just like go back to farming somewhere. Right. And this is one of these things where, you know, you mentioned protecting them. People literally protect and shelter these people. Yeah. So they come in and then they, you know, sometimes stay at a sympathizer's house. Other times they're lucky enough to just say, hey, we need a place to stay. And people were more hospitable in those days. So they didn't know who who they were boarding for the night until – until um you know after yeah after the news breaks the next day of the bank robbery this is so far removed from our day where oh yeah i'm a supporter i put a french flag on my facebook profile <laughs> old school i thought you were gonna say ukraine yeah no, you no, went no. really old school okay about a clan is that what we're talking yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah i don't want to get the podcast pulled and bring you know the ukraine into this <laughs> And so um, we'll just put you know, an extra the, Y on everything and then we'll be good. <laughs> there. We we'll, go. We'll, we'll cover ourselves. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. You know, uh, it will be hard for people to in our day and age to understand, hey, here are these hero bank robbers. I'm going to open up my house to them for the night. They're going to sleep on the floor. Grandpa's going to sit up in the middle of the night, late into the night, chatting with them while he whittles or whatever. And, you know, just everybody had skin in the game. Yeah. They participated in this. And that's something that we, you know, we we can't really fathom. The people that are boarding them, you know, have lived through a civil war, the bloodiest conflict to date that our nation's seen, and uh, at least on home turf, I mean. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, they, I mean, they feel a kinship to Jesse James. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah. Go ahead. And they, yeah. and they are oftentimes being victimized from their perspective by these banks. You know, we... We've been conditioned to think that banks are somehow neutral, businesses are neutral, you know, uh, biz- tax IDs, you know, uh, or uh, excuse me, not tax IDs, but LLCs become persons and yet they have no personal responsibility in our day and age. And so we, we're so far removed from that. You know, uh, I, I dare say that if the average person of a bank robbery today, they wouldn't they wouldn't realize, hey, you're FDIC insured, so your shekels are going to be fine. The the first question would probably be, oh, is my money okay? You know, or oh, look at these people. Why would they do that? Now, granted, modern bank robbery a little bit different. And uh, once I think we'll probably get into that eventually, way down the line in this show, when I exhaustively talk about some shootouts or something like that. But you know, banks are seen and probably rightly so as predatory. And even today they are. That's just a fact. And we still have people in living memory in their 
aged now, but they could they could testify to the to the good old days where the family farm is foreclosed by some local savings and yeah. loan, and the farmers get together on auction day and intimidate people who are trying to bid for the farm and displace widows and people like that. Well, these sorts of things were going on at the time of Jesse James. And the banks are also often seen as carpetbagging or scallywag institutions as well. And so um, Americans who are sympathetic toward the James gang are distrustful of banks, distrustful of Northern institutions, distrustful of outside interest. And so naturally they're going to house members of the James Younger gang. Yeah. And the whole other realm of their operation, which involves train robbery, which again, we're not talking about the West. We're talking about, you might say the Mid-South. Well, and if, it's predominantly hitting, I mean, it, just by nature, it hit, it has to hit the more developed parts. Yep. You know, it, hits, it hits the more developed parts. And when you think about railroads in the 19th century, you should think of like Silicon Valley today. That's, oh, yeah. it's high tech. It is new. It's not necessarily benefiting you. It's probably paid for and profiting someone who lives in New York or Cleveland or something. It's not it's not helping you in Liberty, Missouri. So the idea that the things from which they're taking are somehow everyman type institutions, as if they themselves were burning farms as their family's farm was burned during the war, you know, this this maybe helps you understand the sympathy more. And if you think of it, and this is kind of a leftist talking point, I don't think it's entirely wrong about the period of reconstruction, which is going to last roughly 1865 to 1877, is that this is just another war. And there's even a guy that calls it the the Southern Civil War. Yeah. That, that yeah. the South experiences civil war again for about 12 years after Appomattox. If you think of it that way, then the idea that people are taking them in or harboring, they're doing the same things they were doing in 1864. You just, you don't, you don't have uniforms. General Joe Shelby is not going to march down to Texas in order to preserve his cavalry forces, but it's, it's a continuation of the civil war by other means. So the idea that these guys would be heroes is really simple. If you look at them as simply war heroes for a certain segment of the population. Right. So what we see is not only outbreaks of violence and crime in the West or Middle West, but we also see similar things happening in the large metropolitan areas yeah. of the United States at the time, yeah. which is related. It, it, it's very much related, but it is almost entirely unknown. And it's it's an imbalance that a lot of people... I mean, Americans today have completely unrealistic ideas about their own population. So if, if you ask people what percentage of the American population is Muslim, what percentage is gay? What percentage lives in California? They're going to overestimate everything that is odd, like Muslims right. or gays or Californians. <laughs> um, and with apologies to Mr. Yamabi, we love you, Brian. Don't edit that out. But you know, so they they don't they don't have a they don't have a concept of something that we've mentioned before, which is when Major League Baseball gets started or the National League gets started in 1876. Specifically, St. Louis is like the equivalent of a West Coast team. That That is the Western city that has Major League Baseball. Everything to the East has vastly more people than everything West of St. Louis, not to speak of Kansas City or Denver or Phoenix. So when you think of it that way, you understand if there's going to be crime in America in 1872, just 
by sheer probability, most of it is not going to be in a saloon in Arizona or Wyoming or something. Right. It's going to be in a major city. And the thing that's happening at the same time that the James gang is getting a lot of press in the Midwest is that our immigration rate is absolutely skyrocketing. So between about 1866 and 1920, we receive millions and millions and millions of people. Yeah, we've talked a lot in previous episodes about German immigration a little bit before this, but we're talking about predominantly Irish and Italian at this point, uh, which brings with it its own ethnic crime system that we know as gangs. Yeah, right. Yeah, and and this is something where when you think about the James Gang or the myth of the Wild West, because if you think about the Wild West – Something you you may not notice unless you put it in this kind of historical context of mobs or what we would call the mob, what for Italians is specifically called the mafia, but you have different mobs of different kinds in the Eastern cities, Irish, Jewish, Italian, et cetera, is that the myth of the Wild West is both that number one, it's so violent, it's way more violent than the East and we'll break that apart. But number two, that somehow that kind of violence is intrinsically random or something. And if you, like we said with the savings and loan or railroads, or if you know anything about how the James gang is operating or the way that others will operate in what you might still think of as the West, Arizona, Wyoming, Colorado, et cetera, you'll notice that they're not operating. They're not, they're not operating as mobs. The James Younger gang is a gang. It's, it's like a group chat basically. You know, these, <laughs> right. these guys are together all the time. It's not a, a semi-impersonal group of people. They do have a common ethnicity, but they're not banding together within a, a an ethnically diverse context like an Eastern city at the time. Right. So you're, you're dealing with a completely different way of crime operating, similar to a difference you could say between somebody who's robbing a convenience store and in the same town at the same time on the other side of town, a Mexican cartel is carrying out a hit. Those are both crimes. They're not at all the same. And they're almost certainly right. not being perpetrated by the same person. Right. I mean, obviously, what lends to the understanding of the Wild West as wild begins with the, with the dime novelist. Yeah. The mythos grows with the birth of the film industry in the early 1900s, and it just goes from there. So what's a dime novel? Dime novels are sensational paperbacks that exaggerate or possibly describe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The first verb is good. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) The legend of some of these characters. So not to burst any bubbles, but a lot of say like Wyatt Earp's exploits, for example, those are exaggerated. His mythos grows because he partners with an author essentially who exaggerates their exploits and builds, builds the brand essentially. Yeah. And and so um, these are analogous to uh, comic books or something like that, so that the Wild West characters become akin to superheroes. I would argue, you know, at that point, they're turning more into superheroes than they are uh, legends, although those two are kind of related. But we would consider Robin Hood different from Batman. And so you have these sensational booklets that are selling predominantly in the east in the east right exactly yeah which is where and and so it's just gonna it's gonna grow from there right uh and and so whether whether we realize it or not all of our 
perception of these Old West legends are colored by the dime novelists and then later the filmmakers. Which is like, in 50 years, imagine that everything that somebody knows about Trump is run through their knowledge of their streaming service of choice. Because a dime novel is a streaming service. It's, It's completely populistic right. production for a very low level audience. Now, low level in the 19th century means you read a book. Okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> but but it's still low level and it's produced by and for and you know and this this is Buffalo yeah. Bill, this is the Jameses, this is produced well, I mean, and, and, and by look and for these urban audiences. And it's one of the early examples of popular literature in America. Yeah. The only thing that really comes uh, close to that would be Mark Twain and why he writes the way he does, why his books are so successful. Part of it is because of the English that he uses and the language that he uses. That reaches an audience that until then was untapped yeah. as far as American the, the American reading public. And so, yeah, that's a perfect way to say, you know, the it, it's populist literature. It's accessible literature. Right. And it's cheap. I mean, dime novel is meant to show this is not that expensive relatively. Right. Yeah. And this it this means too that if you go back and you look at the history of dime novels, which is I mean, it's fascinating and and you should read a couple examples of them, sports stories, science what we would now call science fiction. Right. So there's the steam man of the prairie is maybe one of the first dime novels. Really fascinating stuff. If you go back and you read it, what you'll find they never talk about, they're never like and there was a guy named Sergeant Mullally, and he was hunting down a guy named Villanostro in New York City because that's actually <laughs> right. <laughs> that's actually the biggest crime problem in America in say 1877 is not some dashing figure with long hair and a a tattered Confederate jacket that he's still wearing. It is New York City Police Department trying to figure out how to police people. They don't speak the language, so they don't have access to the group. They don't understand why they're behaving this way. They can't stop them. More are coming in all the time. That's an actual coherent crime problem. You can find nonfiction books about stuff like this today, some of it written at a relatively popular level about you know the beginnings of policing or something. But nobody knows that story. And it's not the common right. story It you know it because it, it has nothing to do with gamblers in long black coats well and what's interesting is a lot of these novels are being written while the outlaws are still alive so they're able to or while the characters are still alive and they're able to tailor their image and the old west is when you really see in large form these guys building their public personas building their legends while bill hickok's kind of an example in his own way I mean, he dies, you know, relatively early into the period, but he's got the long hair. He has the image. He's very conscious of how he looks. I, th- I still think Wyatt Earp's the best example because he lives into the 20th century. And we know that he's, I mean, he lives into the early movie making era. So he is able to be a consultant, quote unquote, yeah. uh, for, for these things. And, you know, very much intentionally tailoring things to perpetuate this image and to make money off of it. And some dime novelists become quite wealthy, and but people don't buy boring books. And so much of Old West life is mundane and very similar to uh, rural living. You know, and a book about plowing for most of the year is just not that interesting. 
<laughs> There's a Norwegian novel called Growth of the Soil that I love a lot, but I think that it's it's definitely not for everybody. And it it it's only equivalent in America would be a book called Giants in the Earth, which is about the Dakotas and Norwegian settlers there. And part of the reason it's not for everybody is that it is almost that both novels are extremely realistic. Right. Well, and without looking, Giants of the Earth is written by a man named Oli. So yeah, right. Yeah. And realism about the West, whether you're talking Wyoming or North Dakota or Arizona, is going to involve things being hard scrabble, whether you're trying to raise crops yeah. or get minerals out of a mountain, it's going to be hard scrabble. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be miserable. And it's significant that almost none of that really gets remembered, right? No, so, And the only way you can really get it is through a handful of books or going back and reading diaries. Yeah. And that significantly doesn't even involve, and th this is, you know, I mean, I'll confess my own embarrassment here. Before looking into these things, I think I just imagined in my head that Jesse James was at some time or another, like in Tombstone, Arizona or something. I mean, I yeah, don't know. You would, you, yeah. you know, right. You know, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. Yeah. You don't think of him being where he is because he's so tied up in the old West. You know, you think old West, you think sand rattlesnakes, right. Wool suits and 106 degrees. <laughs> but in actual practice, the territory of like high V and rural yeah. king overlaps <laughs> exactly. with Jesse James. That's that's exactly. the Jesse James territory. Mattoon proud here. Thanks for the rural king reference. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and that's a neglected part of American media. And the way we consume media is predominantly video now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean the podcast has taken over, but you know, you just don't have that many movies and that many fiction novels set in north central Missouri. <laughs> and because what's there, I mean, nothing until you get to, you know, wherever, you know, you go south down into uh, to Springfield, way south into Branson, other than that, and then over to St. Louis. I mean, how much do you really know about Missouri? How, how excited are you? Maybe Hannibal, if you're, you know, to bring Mark Twain back into it. But it's, you know, I mean, I, I know I know a lot of our listeners make an, a regular pilgrimage to Kirkwood, but outside of that very small group. <laughs> Select group, please. Yeah, Select, if yes. you would, thank you. <laughs> you know what do we what do we have and and so so they start reading about you know robbing robbing the bank in Liberty, Missouri, and they're like, oh, oh, okay, or robbing a bank in Columbia, Kentucky, and so what does that mean? You know, I mean, yeah, okay, maybe a little more romantic when they get down to Louisiana, or they rob the stage between Malvern and Hot Springs or something like that, a little more exotic, but beyond that. I mean, it's just, it's the beginning of Outlaw Josie Wales, which by the way, a uh, great movie. Second, uh, you should read the novel and I, and I want to inform the listeners because if you read, if you read the novel by Forrest Carter, he, uh, uh, you actually learn that uh, Josie Wales is a confirmed Appalachian. He's from, actually from East Tennessee <laughs> and he's only five, nine. So it just, it really brings it really, you know, brings out the best of uh, that character in a way the movie does. Lanklet's Lanklet's hardest hit, right? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you know, go read the history of Forrest Carter. That's a pretty fun, uh, pretty fun ride. You know how his first literary success is him pretending to be an Indian, but then it turns out to just be a regular old Klansman. Many such cases. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. How how many times do we have to listen to that story? 
every episode till they read the book. <laughs> I I think that what it means that people don't know this is in Missouri or this is in, you know, wherever Kentucky is it it means effectively that that what we know about ourselves is completely wrong. And I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm not saying this in in terms of, you know, what is that Russian guy that believes that all chronology is off in history? Do you do you know that? Uh, Zolan Heidi. Zol- <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that Russian guy. I was thinking of a different <laughs> Russian guy. But what 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 it means is that when we look back in history, you're you're telling yourself a story about crime in this specific instance that is completely off base. Right. That somehow crime is the result of romantic effort, perhaps on the one side, and that's that's sort of how, especially former confederates are going to use the james gang as it gets as these things get published but on the other hand that crime is the result of stupendous effort and some kind of almost demonic energy until that person is put down and that is a way i think that serial killers are still talked about the serial killers that people whose names people know is that they are discussed as people who like a sort of a Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. but with different attributes who are completely outsized, m- maniacal sorts of people, incredibly intelligent or incredibly strong or incredibly powerful. And you can see how that resembles the, the myth of the superhero. It doesn't tell you the mundane sources crime may actually be coming from. Like right. here are a bunch, There's a there's a really strange book about a, a postal policeman, a postal detective investigating the black hand, which is one of your precursors to the American mafia, right? It's sort of a, a direct import from Sicily. Well, how are these Sicilian guys getting connected? Well, they're getting connected to each other in various cities by selling vegetables. Right. <laughs> it doesn't, that's not interesting. Nobody cares about that. And well, uh, so yeah. two things. One, you know, we, we have to settle the debate um, when talking about La Cosa Nostra. Are Sicilians Italian? <laughs> are Italians and European? Yeah. Ita- well, that was right. the next question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> European. Very safe way to put it. And the Ted Bundy comparison is actually perfect for this because while the, the James King, much more noble than Ted Bundy. So don't take this too far. But Ted, Ted Bundy is, he is romanticized even in his lifetime yeah. you know he he is seen as this handsome kind of roguish character and he plays into that and he builds upon that although we would again hate to lump the the james gang in with serial killers that is a very good comparison as far as how the media and the public understand a uh, a criminal the the only example of this that at the time has a direct parallel to the serial killer phenomenon, which we're going to be talking about in the next series that we'll be doing on mid-century America, mid-20th century America, it, and about which people probably still know because of the book Devil in the White City is H.H. Holmes, who at the time is investigated by a detective sent from Philadelphia. The difference there is that that phenomenon was so unusual at the time but not, in fact, unusual in practice. It was simply unusual in media attention. Right. Much more media attention was given to lone wolves, rogues, et cetera. 
they weren't paying attention to here's a guy who is getting away with something over and over and over again. And why is he doing it? Right. Because only in an urban area, do you have that many anonymous people who can just disappear? Well, and uh, Holmes is another one who gets exaggerated, but he gets exaggerated in more modern time. Yeah. Right. You know, you know that, and, and his legend grows. Um, One of the forgotten serial killer families uh, of the old West would be something like the bloody benders that nobody remembers anymore. And, you know, so the era of high strangeness and stuff, you know, probably really actually for America properly begins in those 1870s. I mean, the benders are in Kansas, the 1870s, they kind of disappear, you know, but mass murders, mass graves, that sort of thing. And yeah, man, a lot of weird stuff going on in Kansas. I'm just saying. You know, we're kind of back to that again, but you, you, yeah, but, well, that that's why we asked for your metaphysical position on Kansas, you know, not just, right. you know, right, exactly. And so, um, <laughs> you know, so now, right now at this point, everybody's Googling bloody benders and I don't know what the, you know, the, I don't know what, what Wikipedia spin has on them. I, I, I know, I know that Wikipedia is, is not giving you much information. You mentioned this earlier, but I, I want to come back to it because I don't I don't think I, I did it justice when you mentioned it earlier, is the advent of what we now call homelessness, which is, of course, connected to crime. It's also connected to drug use, which spikes. And people know at the time that it's spiking. So they'll make, jo- they'll make jokes about, you know, Coca-Cola used to have cocaine in it. Well, a lot of things used to have cocaine in them. Every effective medicine of the 19th century had cocaine in it. <laughs> right. And that that is spiking at this time. And when we when we think about what we now call homelessness, I I have begun to to despise the adjective homeless because it it almost never seems actually to be the problem. Right. If it were the problem, then it could be changed by actually providing housing, which of course we're not in the same housing crunch in 19th century America that we are today in metro areas that there's always something else going on. So if a bunch of men come home from war or there's no home to go back to in in many cases, especially in the South, what are they supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And the only place I ever see that taken up in the fictional media that from which most people get their history is the idea, and that this is kind of, it's going away, but the, the, the former Confederate who wanders out to the frontier. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't tell you anything about the former Union soldier who wanders around Georgia or right. and anybody, anybody actually statistically far likelier to exist. So those guys are wandering around. They are they have become inured to violence. They can't go home for a variety of reasons. You can look into how many guys die within about five years of the war who are veterans. So they make it through the war, but they don't make it through the time after the war. When you think about all those people, you realize that you're dealing with war as the source of crime rather than crime having some other mysterious, you know, some people are just nasty, right? Right. This sort of like almost like demon theory well, of yeah. crime. I mean, it's like you talk about homelessness and of course, I'm going to go right into the demon theory of homelessness here, but modern homelessness is predominantly driven by mental illness or some sort of spiritual right. affliction. Right. And, and so... You put them in houses, that doesn't fix the underlying issue. Right. But enough about Reagan. <laughs> yeah, well, 
we talked about that a long time ago on the show, but it's probably worth revisiting is that when you're talking about what we call mental illness, it's sort of like saying homeless. You're, you, you are already just by virtue of the categorization, stepping around the issue because you're saying that, well, crime just comes from people who are disadvantaged. Well, yeah. maybe it maybe it does yeah. and maybe it doesn't. Uh, mental illness needs to be treated with mental health counseling and stuff like that. Maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. Because what you're going to find in the biographies, if you can move beyond legend, in any of the criminals for whom we have biographies, whether in an Eastern city or much more prevalently, they take the biographical method with Western crime is that you're going to find some immense collection of horrors yeah. in the guy's life, usually perpetrated upon him first and then he perpetrating them. So the Jameses are somewhat unusual in that you said they were honorable. They they will do things like refuse to harm women and children, or they will do things like, mm-hmm. you know, only attack institutions that are that are really not being patronized by anybody who would support them, right? Doesn't have enough money is too cash poor to be involved with a bank, for example. So there's that. But but when you're talking about random violence or uh, shootouts or things that just seem, it just seems chaotic, not only is that more of an Eastern than a Western phenomenon in the 19th century, but it's also not a phenomenon disconnected from the human beings perpetrating these things. It's Crime is not like weather, Right, And a lot of times when people don't want you to know about something, they tell you that it's kind of like the weather, mm-hmm. you know, like you just don't have any control over it. Like, right. He's there. That's just the way they are. <laughs> that's just the way things go. And you can't do anything about it. You know, so yeah. Yeah. And as we're coming up, you know, in the final segments of this episode in the series, you know, one wonders, okay, we can speculate on what causes this and why the James gang acts the way they do. And it's pretty obvious. It is in reaction to their circumstances. And it is in accord with their code, their creed, if you will. And yet crime in general, regardless of it's happening at the Kansas border, if it's happening in central Missouri, Huntington, West Virginia, New York City, seems to sort of always fold in on itself and multiply. And so what can the listeners today then learn from the nature of crime in the border war, nature of crime during the so-called outlaw days? Yeah. Um, what, what does that teach us? A word that Paul Wellman, who writes this Western Outlaws book that, you know, you can take this series and kind of go from there. That's that's probably your, your most interesting. And that, that's a well-written book. It, it reads almost like a dime novel at, at, at points. The word that he uses for crime is that crime is contagious. That when people see it around them, it gives them a sense that limits are not there and that they too could could do likewise. Because crime relies on the human capacity for imitation or at least projection. If If I have never seen such an example or I can't even project what would happen if I did something like that, then it, it's hard to achieve. Mm-hmm. Or I might try to achieve it and be scared by what I find and, and back off. But if I think it can actually be carried out and I could carve out a life that way, or at least go through with you know this act or that act, then I'll do it. So he calls it contagious 
for that reason. Something that I, I find convincing about that is the way that violent crime does generally decrease along with what we would call nonviolent or maybe property crimes or uh, antisocial behavior, if you want to be really diffuse about what you're talking about. But that's that's the broken windows theory of policing that New York used in the early 2000s, late 90s and early 2000s to make New York a, a safer place than it was in the early 90s when it was a, and I, I, you know, even if you don't believe the statistics being put out today, crime is rising. Mm. You could say it's a lot higher than the statistics reveal for many large cities, but it's definitely rising. I, I'm not sure anybody disagrees with that. How did they stop that the last time it was roughly this high in the early 90s? Well, they started saying, if you tag something with graffiti, or if you break a window, or if you are disorderly in public, we will do whatever we need to stop that. Yeah, this podcast brought to you by the Rudy Giuliani Legal Defense Fund. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so when when that happens, obviously, it's a nicer place to be. But it also the if you want to look at this, OK, that's the effect on you who don't want to commit a crime. You just want to well, walk down the street. Yeah. And if I can, you know, kind of paint a picture for the listeners here, the um, a, a lot of our uh, younger listeners will remember New York City as it is today, kind of a Disney fied version. Yeah. They, they don't realize that Death Wish 3 is probably closer to the reality as far as New York in the 1970s and 80s is concerned. Right. And the only reason that New York City is able to be this tourist mecca, a safe tourist mecca, relatively speaking now, is because of these measures that they took. I mean, it was it was a disgusting place until the 90s and 2000s. I mean, it's still a disgusting place, but it was overtly disgusting. Yeah. You know, not just in the crime being committed and the violence, but but open displays of pornography and other things like that. That was just that. Was, well, you live in New York, so that's what it's going to be. Right. You know, you don't like it, don't come here. Okay. Yeah, it's you like know, the so, yeah. yeah. So you, you didn't have the tour buses from, you know, uh, Minnesota being dropped off like you do today. And that was seen for them, although everybody wanted it fixed. You know, nobody liked the riots, blackouts, rapes, murders, but that was seen as, well, this is just the price for living in a big city. Right. And, you know, for, from my perspective, that's not an acceptable approach to policing, it's not an acceptable approach to living. And these places, whether right or wrong, are how the world perceives America. If they don't perceive us as a bunch of backwater goons, you know, they they see us as New York City. New York City sets the sets the face for America, and then sort of by proxy, all of the other major metropolitan areas. But you talk to a foreigner, for example, they think New York City and Chicago are next to each other, and Los Angeles is a three-hour drive or yeah, something right. like that. That's right. Yep. And, and so, and to be honest. It's a fair reflection of America because how much of our American population lives in these cities? And so what does that say about the heart and the soul of a nation? We can we can sing a song about the heartland all that we want, but that doesn't discount the millions of people in these areas and the crimes that are nowadays at least allowed to go on with relative impunity. The contagion idea is very powerful because what it says is that it is not like the weather, but it is like a disease. And if you took measures to counteract it, you could actually do something about it rather than it's it's the cry of the oppressed, which was the explanation for the mostly peaceful protests in 2020. 
but it, but is also the explanation for, well, okay, now suddenly everything in this retail outlet is going to be under lock and key because, or, because or certain items. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, and, and, and so, okay. So you got the old West or, or the wild West. We'll use that term for now. Sure. It's, it's objectively true that the end of the old West doesn't come until the 1950s, but the vestiges of the old west are not violent crimes and shootouts in the streets it's just untamed land for the most part that's the wild part we associate in popular culture wild with violence but really wild just refers to the untamed plains and prairies and deserts and so all the way up until the 50s you still have these roughly unsettled places or places where the trains don't reach and the, and the same can be said about florida the homeland of our hearts as well but the issues from the 1860s that existed in the large metropolitan areas still exist yes. in those same areas and yes. are becoming worse. Yeah. Yeah. So you have contagion. You also have the idea of spiking drug use, which you're going to find is a commonality between post-Civil War 1970s and 2020s. Yeah. I mean, opium becomes a huge problem in the late 19th century. And then in the 1990s, it rears its head again. And when you think about these things, I think you you want to ask yourself is it and we did this in the series that we did on cities earlier you want to ask yourself is this just part of city life or is this my lack of imagination about what a city could be like and in order to know any alternative you kind of have to know a different version of that city probably a historical version in order to have a sense of what is actually possible going forward. Well, yeah, and New Yorkers wear their I mean it's like a Vietnam veteran wearing his cap with his you know, um, <laughs> service time on it. That's how New Yorkers see, you know, city living. And, you know, fair warning, I am married to a woman from Queens, you know, such as life, the duality <laughs> of man and all that. But they're, they're all this way. And it's this, when talking with these people about the state of the city, it becomes this just sort of, I think it's a coping mechanism. They have to brush off. Well, that's just the price you pay Yeah, to live in the greatest city on earth. And so, um, you know, that's, that's what you have, you know, it's going to get worse and whether, and we're talking about mob violence, just like you had in the, in the 19th century, but we're also talking about personal crime and that's really continuing getting worse. Everybody wants to talk about this in numbers of mass shootings, but if you look at, what is classified as a mass shooting it is predominantly simply gang related which is just one degree removed from mob violence in a way and so that's going to continue to increase the factionalization of america will increase and so these incidents will increase and so if america is becoming increasingly factionalized well then that ties right back in to the to the james younger gang and similar um it except, you know, less noble. And and on the part of an everyday citizen, much less organized because yes, because the James Younger gang is going to stand for a whole potential way of life that is, you know, lost in 1865, but now will somehow be maintained or reasserted or retaken. They're, they're, they are they are very much reconstruction era figures, right? Yeah, and and there is something different about it. we're going to carefully plan 
a, a, a bank robbery and for the, of the Abilene savings and loan <laughs> versus we're going to destroy five blocks of Minneapolis. Yeah. I think that the difficulty for listeners, but for your average person who isn't smart enough to listen to this podcast is that the, I, the idea that you live in a non-functioning society, therefore you need to band together with like-minded people, which is common in a place like Missouri throughout the Civil War and afterward, but certainly in the rest of the South, if you want to include it as part of the South for, for our purposes today, in the rest of the South after the Civil War, this happens, is that when there is chaos, right? So when crime gets bad enough that maybe you could even call it war, when there's chaos, if you are not banded together, then you don't really have anything. Right. And you are a sitting duck. And while the modern version of that, at least for our core audience, would be some kind of online community, even in the current year, an in-person community is very important. Yeah. For when these things actually happen. <laughs> um, you can only do so much when you're all spread out across the country, but having your local networks are key to surviving these things. It's, I mean, it, it's how the Jameses survive for years and years and years under assumed names in various states. There is, you know, spur of the moment hospitality, but there's also long-term hospitality, people agreeing not to turn them in. Well, and, yeah, and, it, yeah. and it goes back to the honor code and things like that, yeah. um, which is baked into these people, which should be baked into you all as well. But we don't have that as a society anymore. I know I sound like some left-wing missiologist. My honor culture, that's not what I'm talking about, really. I'm talking about ideas of fidelity and and such. Ideas of a higher moral standard than what the government would hold you to. Right, yeah. A, a moral, a moral right. standard that is higher and yet willing to break those lower codes in the right circumstances, as far as civil government's concerned. Right, because... If we are operating inside a frame where, and I, I continually return to this kind of horrible idea that we've been explaining the moral law to at least confirmation kids as speed limits, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Is Go right that, up to the line. Yeah, is that if the government, if the government is going to determine morality, and then we're going to turn each other in on the basis of promulgated public morality, good or ill, right? Right. Then then we really don't stand a chance as a group unless the government wants to approve of us. And since it doesn't approve of opposition to homosexuality and abortion, not to speak of anything else, we don't really have hope unless we actually change into something else. Like we, we're going to have to drop those things if we're going to survive while also appeasing our overlords. Yeah. And you, you mentioned those two issues. Those are really the only line that we have anymore that we're willing to take a public stand on. Yeah. Everything else, we're willing to throw men under the bus who kick against the goads, as it were. And it only ever seems to go in one direction as far as who we're willing to throw under the bus. And look, you got to stand with your clan, C-L-A-N. Uh, you have to, you have to, even your knuckleheads, you have to be willing to protect. And that's something we're not ready for. And this is where we've talked about previous podcasts that still exists. <laughs> the idea that 
so much of I love the our... Daily Caller podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so much of our our willingness to throw people under the bus for for not wanting to look passe or for wanting to have this kind of public image that nobody cares about anyway. Yeah. So for the sake of a good public image, for the sake of a brand, for the sake of our own brand for or whatever, uh, we're willing to throw men under the bus. Th- that to me is so beyond the pale of what a Christian male should stand for. And yet we've, we've lost it for the sake of appealing to people who hate us. It's, it's a non-survival strategy because it refuses to deal with the people inside your own group as people inside your own group sharing the same allegiance. They can quickly be turned into and, and written off as anathema, which Paul will only do to people after they have publicly, you know, denied the gospel, for example. Exactly. Okay. And the, and the same Paul is the one who says to take care of your own first. B- but I think that what the church is locked into, particularly, that is very much not a survival strategy, is a way of being safe mm-hmm. within our culture. So they're willing to recognize, and there's a symposium going on right now at St. Louis, you know, about Christian nationalism or something. They're willing to recognize that the church is estranged from the culture. Their survival strategy now adopted is some sort of Anabaptism without all of the cool stuff. <laughs> right, right. 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 So it's like, you know, we're estranged. We have nothing to do with that. We're not worried about that. That's that's fine, I guess, if you're gonna if somebody else is gonna defend you and you're Amish. So you have a total fertility rate that's actually you know, demographically sustainable and more than sustainable. That's not us. So we're just going to be disconnected, not defend ourselves and get steamrolled, which is what, which is what happens ideologically with our own children, right? not to speak of anything else. So when we're dealing with a future where what we know is that, you know, crime is not going to get significantly better necessarily in most places, and we are not a favored group, then if we're saying, please take everything we have, let's get rid of everything. We're, we're just asking to go out of existence. And I know that that sounds really strange because some people's idea of America is that it's, it's like still the 1980s or something. And our biggest problem are like evangelicals who worship the flag. (laughs) We could go out of existence just like European Christians have. And we may well yet. I mean, if if the only thing that binds us is a shared co-branding. Okay. If the only thing that unites us is what do we want to say? A Disney version of churchmanship. If the only thing that unites us is a sauerkraut supper and a hymnal, that's not enough to sustain people during hard times. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So in the last minute here, any, any final thoughts as we close out this series? As we close out the series, you got to remember that that violence is normal in human history and peace is rare and therefore to be preserved or recovered if possible. But also that if you want to make it through hard times, you need to have a group that will actually have your back per se. Mm-hmm. That is what all kinds of the folks that we've talked about had. And that is the very thing that very that most often we don't have. That if I did anything that kicked against the goats, either in the church or at work or wherever, I would probably be sacrificed for the group's sense of its own well-being rather than sheltered 
right or wrong, whatever you think about all the James robberies, right or wrong, that the group would shelter me rather than kicking, rather than destroying me as soon as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Well, looking forward to the next few episodes coming up. We finally get to get into the really weird stuff that uh, was part of my, (laughs) that was that I insisted that Ryder be put in my contract with Prehistory of Power. So this has been a brief history of power. Thank you for listening and you know where to find us.